and part of what brings life out of death, and that's where we're headed today as well, is when we share our gifts. And what you're going to hear as Paul writes to the Corinthians is our role is to bring life to others by sharing what we have and creating balance. And then out of the Mark scripture, you're going to hear of life and death. And the, the last phrase that you'll hear as Shannon reads coming out of Mark, or just at the very end, are these two words, talitha kum. Talitha kum means get up, daughter, get up and be alive. So hear these words of life. Shannon. Hear now God's word from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that by your eagerness, your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Holy wisdom, holy word. And now hear our gospel reading as you please stand as we hear the words from the gospel of Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they had come to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make such a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but is sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years of age. And this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Hmm. This is the word of God. Thanks. Thanks to God. God. You may be seated. Thank you, Shannon. As I said last week, it was an interesting annual conference, and one of the things that we were reminded was that the church is changing and that the concepts around the church are so much less based in religion or the religious elements or in research what we... I love this language around research. You, gotta, you take a small, simple word and make it something that doesn't make any sense. Their word was religiosity. Religiosity? I don't think that's even in the dictionary. But that there has to be a shift to, to allow ourselves to go deeper and not get so caught up in in just the the things of religion as to be reminded of what brings life and often what brings life out of death. For the next month, throughout the month of July, we're going to be doing um, a number of things and particularly those who are coming in to preach are going to be rooted in one theme. That theme is rooted in faith as represented in the tree that's half hidden behind the screen. Rooted in faith. But to be rooted in faith, we need to know what takes those roots deeper, what helps us remember what what lay at the foundation, even below the surface of those things that can take us and remind us, as I said, of whose we are and who we are and even how we are. And so to do that today, I want to focus on these four elements right here to remind us of what lay at the foundation and the significance of each one of these pieces, particularly as they sit in this room, this place of safety, this sanctuary. Millennia ago, every culture in the world at that time believed in a force greater than themselves. They all interpreted that force and how to engage that force in a variety of different ways. Some engaged in some kind of worship or they put up a stone and that's what they worship. Or we see it at even places like Stonehenge or the Easter Islands of the kinds of worship that was done. But there came emerging out of that time one group of people who didn't believe in multiple gods but of one God. And that one God was what rooted them not only in the world but together. And initially what they thought is that, mount, that, that God lived on the mountaintop, or at least God's essence would be there on the mountaintop. They believed that God was a powerful God, and in this time, it wasn't people who warred against each other. It was gods, they believed, that warred against each other. That the more powerful God would always win. And so the higher the mountain, the more powerful the God. But what happened in the history, as we see in story after story after story in Scripture, is that this God emerged in a different way. 
The God that they had worshipped allowed something to happen, and suddenly they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And yet it was this God who chose one person to bring them out of that slavery. And then as Moses brought them out of the slavery, they knew that they needed more definition, and a, a message was sent to Moses to go up on the mountain where God's presence and essence was. And remember what happened is Moses went up to the mountain, right? And he received, I just can't get Charlton Heston out of my head. He received these tablets, and you see this, these, this amazing creation by Cecil B. DeMille and, and the creation of these tablets. And Moses carries these heavy tablets down the mountain, and knowing that they possessed the very essence and power of God in these tablets. And what should he find when he gets to the bottom of the mountain? But a group of people who were worshiping not that God, not the God that took them out of Egypt, but a golden calf created by their own hands. And out of his own anger, as he held the essence and presence and power of God in his own two hands, he heaved these at the people. And as that power hit the earth, it cracked open, and the consequences came in the form of death. And out of that death, even that death, came new life of those who would then follow. But on into the wilderness. But before they went there, Moses had to go back up, right? And get a new set. And he did. And thus was born the Ten Commandments. But this time, as he brought them down, the power, the essence of God formed into the law. You remember what they did with that this time? They put them in a box created an ark. Do you remember this? Remember Sunday school? And the law and God's power and presence were placed in this box, an ark. Okay, all you have to do is go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark one more time and you'll see what I'm talking about here. But there was power in that, power to bring death and power to bring life. And that ark is what led them then to the promised land. And even there's a story in the Old Testament where, where the ark, as it's crossing the Jordan River, being carried by the selected priests, begins to tip. And one man tried to save it and went up and touched the ark and immediately died. That was the power of this ark. And it was the ark that led them into the wilderness with that power and essence of God in that ark through this land of promise, conquering any in their path. And the ark finally ended up in the city of David, in not Bethlehem, but the city built by David on the hill in Jerusalem. And they created a whole temple around that presence and that power found in that law of God and believed that that brought life. But it was so holy and so powerful that they created its own room at the very front of the temple where only once a year one priest was able to go and even approach it. But even that was iffy for that priest. I don't think I'd ever want to be that priest. Because you know what they did? As I shared this with you before, they, they put bells around the bottom of the robe. It was a certain priestly robe and they put bells around the bottom of the robe. And right before he entered into the altar the room of the altar of incense, right before the Holy of Holies, they tie a rope around his ankle just in case God didn't like him and would strike him dead. And so that no one else would have to go and put their life on the line, they could then just drag him out. <laughs> Believe it or not, that is in the Bible. 
it is there. Life, death, consequences. So as we go on in the history then, what they did is in the outside, just outside the temple, just before you'd go in, they built this huge altar of, of, of a horned altar, they call it. It was huge, I mean huge. And to make sure that you were okay with God, because now, you know, you know what we do. We create law after law after law, and we don't like this law, so we create that law and that law kind of... And this is, we have three books in the Old Testament. Somebody said to me the other day that they were trying to read the whole Bible, and my question to them, because they were in Leviticus, was why? Law after law after law. No one could follow all these laws. So once a year, they had the opportunity to, to get grace and be... Um, cleansed from their sins and they would go up depending on their economic level and they would go into the temple courtyard and they would buy animals the poorer you were the smaller the animal the richer you were the larger the animal but the key was that you had to feel something this had to cost you something out of your own economic situation so that you remembered that God created all things but then I won't go into detail at least much, the priest would then cut the animal open and, and they would look at the outside and the inside. And if the animal was blemished in any way, you were in trouble. You were rejected by God and had another year to suffer through the lack of blessing. Death. But if it was unblemished, oh, you were forgiven and God came to you. And then the animal was placed in the fire, and believing, and some of us still believe, I guess, that, that where God lives, right, lives in the heavenly realm, which is always up, that as the burning of the animal came, it would create that smoke and would become, and you've heard this language before, a fragrant offering to God. And God would take it in, know who was represented in this animal, and they would be forgiven and blessed for the coming year. It's amazing to me what's happened over time and how we seem to continually struggle with what this God is and how this God functions. And now over time we have changed the way we view God. At least I hope we have. I don't see a burning altar up here. I don't see that it's about blood anymore. But does that mean it's not about some kind of sacrifice of ourselves into this faith. The God is still all-powerful, the source of all life, the source of creation, the God that we believe in, still doesn't demand but hopes, I believe, for some recognition of the power that is there. And for us, as people living in this time, and particularly in this sanctuary, might we need some reminder of that power, that power that brings life, that even, as I'll say in a minute, overcomes death and hopes that not only we recognize the power that God brings and the love that God has, but also a God that is so deserving of our worship and our praise and might, just might, this table help us remember that that's what this is. That we come to worship God. Might that table, when we walk in, help us remember that. 
But there's more. As the people were then scattered, the consequence of, of this law was that they believed that God took the land from them because of their sin and scattered them to the winds. And off in the distant places, as Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed, off in the distant places, can you imagine what that would have done about their belief in God? If God's essence lived in the temple and the temple was destroyed, where's God? Well, a change happened. And hope was born out of hopelessness. And two things emerged out of that scattered time. One was that God had not, in, in fact, deserted them. That God had created consequences but was still with them. But that it would take one person to bring them back together. One Messiah to allow them to come home, to renew hope in them. And what you see over and over, the longest section of Scripture are the prophets who tell the people of Israel, this is how you will be returned. This is where you can find your hope. And we see the prophets and we celebrate those prophets every year at a certain time of year, which we'll get to in just a second. But the first Messiah did not come in the form of a Jew. The first Messiah was King Cyrus of Persia who allowed them to return to their country, filled them with hope and allowed that temple to be rebuilt and then an inscription that was just found probably 10 years ago, quoting Cyrus, saying, let me come, let me know of the God that you follow and worship so that I too might come and worship that God. And so they returned, but they were still oppressed. Hadn't all been done yet. Hope hadn't fully been restored, so they kept hoping for another Messiah, someone who would come in, three schools of thought around this, of who would save them, who would kick Rome out, and, and that Messiah would become the king of Israel and offer us hope and, and where we needed to be as the chosen people, the only chosen people. But then the strange thing happened. That may have been their hope, but for us as Christians, that's not what happened. Suddenly, suddenly in this time of history, a baby was born to an obscure couple who were homeless at that time in an obscure place, far from home, not in the temple hospital or a baby wasn't going to be laid in that soft bed of a castle or a temple. But this baby was born to Mary and wasn't wrapped in royal robes but pieces of cloth torn from the bottom of her robe and not laid in a throne but in a cow trough and what's key is who the visitors were then because this is where hope completely is reborn and everything changes who were the first visitors who got the message of that messianic birth. Who were the first to receive it from the heavenly realm? Who were they? The shepherds. The lowliest of the low. The hopeless of the hopeless. The lost, the least, the last. Received this message and suddenly things shift. And by the way, who then visited? Here, let me help you. 
The Magi, right? And by the way, were they Jewish? No, they were not. They were people who believed in a different kind of understanding of creation, a different kind of understanding of God. And they were the ones who came and brought the gifts to this child, recognizing that this, in fact, was the Messiah. This was the one who was going to create a different kind of kingdom and hope. And suddenly, Jesus grows up. And he heals, and he walks, and he teaches, and he challenges, and he prods, and he points, and says, this is how you are to live. Life is offered when you offer your own life to others who may be hopeless. Life is given as you offer your own life for those in need. That's how life happens. Dying to ourselves in just what we want or need and bringing life to others, that's how it happens. And he challenged the Jewish authorities to the very core, so much so that they killed him. Thinking that killing him death would silence his voice but it's that voice and those actions that brought life and that that is what symbolizes all of that this has to be a reminder this cross that we also are called to live our lives for others that what makes us whole and makes us alive is exactly that of living our lives as Jesus lived his to the point to the point of death if need be how many of us are willing to make that sacrifice but notice the location of that cross it is to be the first thing we see when we walk into this sanctuary and the combination of these two is so important for us to understand and that when Matt brought this light in it was to help us remember that Jesus was that light but when Matt comes in and takes it out it is a reminder that these two elements don't stay contained in this box that they are to go out and we are to share that with others but we can't do it alone and that's where this comes in this is the bowl of baptism, the font, the fountain that helps us remember. And just quickly, let me remind us of the history of this. And particularly in the early church, what happened, it was incredible how they celebrated baptism then to allow someone to enter into this community that celebrated both that God of creation and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus what they would do is they would gather. It was a, a one created room secretly in the, in the city of Jerusalem. It, was, it was, wasn't one room. It was one building. And you would enter in over here, those who were to be baptized that day, and you would be interviewed by the, the congregation. And then you were walked into this center room, absolutely polished clean, but in the center of that room was a stone sarcophagus. And what's a sarcophagus? A coffin out of stone and that coffin was filled with water and what would happen is they would come and 
the leader of that group, the priest or the, the pastor or, or whatever you want to call it, the leader at that time would stand at the head of the sarcophagus and the disciple who was coming in would stand at the foot. And then after another piece of examination, they would be asked to disrobe, men with men and women with women. And someone, one of the disciples, one of the members of that congregation would take those clothes as they took them off and took them out and burned them as a sign of the death to that life. They would then be helped into the sarcophagus, turn this way, and those around the sarcophagus, the rest of the congregation, men with men and women with women, would then allow them to descend into the water with words of forgiveness and grace. And they would go under the water and then lift it up and welcomed into new life. And they would step from that stone coffin and be wrapped in a brand new white robe, never before worn by anyone, believing that this was life out of death. But then, here's the key, they would be embraced by those around that stone coffin, taken into the next set of double doors, which would spring open. And in the midst of that room was an incredible party, a celebration of the new life now found in this one. And then at the end of the party, they would gather around that table, a table that celebrated the community and the fact that now another was a part of this community. And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Again, what do we do with the Lord's Supper? Isn't it about death to life? Doesn't it remember the life of Jesus the way this cross reminds us? Lived not for himself, but for others. This rite of passage moves then into this table where then what we become is the encouraging community that we all might live that way dying to ourselves and living for others. I mean, it's, the liturgy alone is beautiful, as Paul writes about it, as we see it in the gospel, and, and, and it's written about in Corinthians. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. Bread. Bread in that time was the ultimate example of nourishment, of that which made people alive again. The cup was that cup of the new covenant, a new possibility of a new life. And that gathering around the table, knowing that not everyone was secure in their own faith, but in the community might we all be able to come alive again. Oh, friends, we need to stop kind of messing around with these important elements and remember their importance in the midst of this place so that every time we walk in we're reminded of who and what and how and whose we are. Every time. Let me close with this thought. As Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, what you heard Shannon read was the fact that as we share 
what we have with those who do not have is when God's balance is created. When was the last time you shared what you had in your abundance with those who are not living in abundance to create balance in their lives? What Diana Butler Bass reminded us of at conference last week was that the church is not dead. She was even able to say the church is not dying. The church is asleep. And the church needs to wake up. To wake up. Talitha Kum. To get up. And to go. And to be alive. To live alive. To remember alive. To be passionate alive. To help alive. To offer hope alive. To give what they are and what they have, each one of us, to make others alive. 